no one underneath you sees everything that you see. And no one above you, your board, sees everything that you see. You're this single point of integration. So if you're not the one kind of connecting the dots, making sure it's all syncing up, looking to the future while people are running the day-to-day, well, then who else is doing that? That's Carolyn Dewar talking about CEOs, and she's a senior partner with McKinsey and the co-author of CEO Excellence. The subtitle is The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best from the Rest Based on Research of Over 200 CEOs. And by the way, if you like level five leadership that Jim Collins writes about in Good to Great, I've got news for you. Again, this is opinion. This book is better based on the six vital roles successful CEOs perform on a regular basis. And again, I said roles, not leadership styles, traits, or personalities uh, based on this research. Hey, in this conversation, we're going to hear about S-curves, the kitchen cabinet, one of the best CEO stories I've ever heard on humility, defining roles versus right people, and the Brad Smith 40 30 2010 rule. All that and more with our conversation with Carolyn Dewar, co-author of CEO Excellence. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. I am one of those crazy, weird people who reads the front matter of every book he reads. So that includes the blurbs of praise, the introduction. Uh, And by the way, the introduction I thought was great, even funny. And I also can't help noticing, even if I go to the back of the book first, to read about the authors. And this was a dream team of McKinsey authors. And this just had to be such a fun project. Absolutely. Both Scott Keller and Vic Maholtra and I, the nice thing is we've known each other for 20 years. And so that makes it fun as well. It was an excuse to hang out with our friends, to be honest, um, but also bring really different lenses, right? We each have different backgrounds, serve different clients, different experiences. Um, and I think we all brought something to the party, which was was such a privilege. You are either a one percenter or a two percenter. I started my career at KPMG, Pete Marwick, and that's the percentage of people who go on to become partners. I, I looked at your LinkedIn profile. You've been with them really since day one. So usually we, I like to ask about the origin story, but your origin story really goes back, starts with McKinsey, and it's still with McKinsey. That's pretty cool. It does. It's funny, though. I I will admit I bristle when you said one percenter. I grew up I'm from Canada. I grew up just outside Oshawa, which is a GM town, you know, kind of the Flint, Michigan of Canada um, and just very much have a a super grounded family. So I definitely that that notion is strange to me, but I got really lucky. I I went off to university in the UK. Um, My parents are both British. And then I applied to McKinsey right out of undergrad without really knowing what it was, which I think in the end of the day was helpful because I didn't freak out. I didn't realize how scary it was. Um, And I started in 2000. I've been here 22 years. That's amazing. Hey, one personal nugget before we get into business. You like farmers markets. I do. I mean, that's part of why we escaped Canada and moved to California, to be honest, you know, the chance to be hiking and be outside, but also 
yeah, the food is just amazing. I love to cook. I love taking my kids. And I still get a kick out of going to them here in California and seeing that, you know, there's eight types of peaches, which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> Before we talk about the introduction of the book, which I thought was hilarious, I listened to the book and then I read it. So I think listening to the introduction, it, it, just, it, it evokes some emotion, humor. Uh, but before we get to that, the origins of the book, I'm guessing it goes back to one of the, your top 10 articles ever. And by the way, I had read that article before, and I think it was you in the book that made the connection to that article. So what what led to this book? Sure, absolutely. I mean, as you say, there's a lot of books out there on leadership broadly. There's a lot of books about specific CEOs, right? Autobiographies or kind of epics on specific ones. But we hadn't really seen someone who'd looked across all of the CEOs and especially those who'd performed well and said, well, what is the secret sauce? And to your earlier point, too, even just what is the role and how do you do it well? And so we consistently had that question coming up with clients and with others. And we put together an article, an early answer of, well, what is the role anyway? And what seems to make them tick? And we're surprised, pleasantly surprised by the response. It had over a million downloads. It's a and we're like, well, maybe article. we're onto something. There's there's a need here that people are hungry to learn more. I was going to say, it's a great article. I don't want to steal your thunder, but the introduction is just, it's hilarious. Uh, and just to tee it up, it's the three CEOs, one CEO at a speaking event. And I think you and your other co-authors are at the same event, but they talk about what they do. And I'm sure everyone's pumped up. But then the next speaker, and I don't know if it's the next day, but I'll let you take it from there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we put on these events for kind of next generation, soon to be CEOs. And, you know, we take a group of 20 or 30 away for a couple of days. And as part of it, we have, you know, legendary CEOs come and speak to them about the role. And it just so happened that we had a CEO a day for three days in a row. And for each of them, we posed the question, you know, what is the role of a CEO? And all of them had a very clear point of view. All of them said there were three things, but the three that they each gave were totally different, right? So day one, the person stood up and it's very compelling. They're like, well, the role of a CEO is, you know, to set direction, to be the chief storyteller, and to be kind of the chief cultural vanguard. And when you're listening to it, you're like, yep, that's it. Sounds good, right? And then the next day, a new person, equally compelling answer, but totally different. And this went on day after day. And it was on the car ride back to the airport that we all kind of looked at each other and said, if I was a participant there, I would have loved the interaction and loved it. But I might have walked away a little confused, right? What really is it? It sounds like everyone has their own take. And that became the nexus for the research. Now, speaking of research, you started with 2,000 names how did you go from 2000 to the number that you ended up researching? Absolutely. So classic McKinsey, we, we took an analytical approach because we didn't just want to survey all CEOs. We wanted some way of understanding who had over-delivered in the role, who had really excelled, and making sure that we talked to those folks. So we started with the CEOs of the Forbes 2000 companies in the last 20 years. It turns out there's more than 2000 because there's been some cycling through. And we filtered for, for three things. We filtered first for performance. You had to have delivered excess TRS versus your industry peers 
in the top two quintiles. And so we wanted to normalize for the fact that tech companies' performance is different than maybe other sectors. And so in your sector, you had to be in the top two quintiles. Then we filtered for tenure. We wanted you to have been in the role for long enough that there was some track record. So you had to be at least six years, time to eat your own cooking. And then the third one was almost a reputational filter, right? There's so many expectations now of the leadership and the, ex- and the reputation of CEOs that it couldn't just be delivery at all cost. We didn't want, you know, a lot of, of crises of your own making and, and upheavals that, that wouldn't put you in that category. So we went from that, it took us from 2000 down to 200. And of those 200, uh, we wanted a statistically significant sample. So we talked to just under 70. There's another attribute that I thought was brilliant, and and if if you said it and I missed it, I apologize. Didn't you also ensure that the succession to the next CEO, their next leader, that was part of the filtering too, which I thought was incredibly brilliant. Absolutely, and I think it goes to this notion of you are the steward of the company even beyond your tenure, right? And so if you had done a great job, but as soon as you left, the thing fell off the cliff, those weren't examples that we were looking looking for either. So you're right, there was a number of things in that third category. One last thing before we get into the, the big ideas of the book. Is it fair, Carolyn, to say that this can also apply to private companies? Now, there's one of the six roles. It may not seem applicable, but I think there's you can replace uh the board with say like bankers or other stakeholders, but private companies, we, and I work mostly with private companies. We can get value out of this book as well. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in the book, we have a a range of ownership structures. There's some family owned business, some founder and CEO led, and then some public CEOs. I think absolutely private companies. We even have one or two, Um, not-for-profits, you know, Cleveland Clinic, big hospital networks in there. And I think it not only applies broadly, it also applies to non-CEOs. I think we thought we were setting out to write a CEO book. It turns out these leadership lessons apply to everyone. As you say, the board component, you just have to think broadly, who's your stakeholder group, right? right, You're you're working for. I need to confess to you, there's a little bit of fear and uh, trepidation in interviewing you because I think I've got close to about 150 ahas uh, I've done a lot of highlighting, a lot of notes in my Kindle edition. So how in the world do I boil the ocean uh, down to 20 to 30 minutes? So here's what we're going to do. I want you to share the six roles or the six responsibilities. Then I apologize. I'm going to boil down just a few of the big ideas. Again, there are way too many, but let's start out with the six roles and then I'll follow up with some big ideas. So the first question we were trying to answer is, what is the CEO role anyway? Right. right. And it turns out there are six things. We tried to get it to three. Um, and even with the CEOs, they tried to get it down. But as we all stared at it together, there was nothing that anyone felt they could cut out. So with apologies for it being six, here's what they were. The first one is to set direction, right? Ultimately, your job at the top of the house is whether it's you or with your team, to make sure there's a clear strategy, set of bold moves and resources allocated. So where are we headed, right? Number two is really getting the organization to work effectively together. That's culture, talent, org design. Again, you have that purview at the top of the house to say, are we working well in the way that we need you to deliver? 
The third one is really about your team. So leading a high-performing team at the top and an operating rhythm with that team. So you're managing through leaders. These jobs are too big for any one person. So what's going to be your kind of distributed leadership model at the top? The fourth one is around the board. How do you engage with your board? Not just the board meeting, all of it, right? What does that look like? The fifth one is something that's only increasing, which is really engaging with your external stakeholders. All of these stakeholders that have opinions on your business, which ones do you respond to and not? And then the last one is your own personal operating model. How are you going to show up as a leader? Both the tactics of where you spend your time and energy, but also just who will you be as a leader in this role that will make the biggest difference. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. I do want to say the first, the third, and the sixth, they were my favorite. And I don't know if an author wants to hear that because you might no, say, I want, okay. I want them all to be your favorite. Even within the three offers, we all we each have our favorites, so it's okay. <laughs> um, the, the, I want to ask a nosy question. It's a sneaky question, but every great director of a movie, the hardest job is to take that nine hours of footage or that six hours and pare it down. Am I allowed to ask the question, was there maybe a seventh or an eighth or a ninth that had to get cut? And if you say, Mark, I can't tell you, I accept that. No, I think it's fine. We had lively debate. We love debating all these things, not just as authors, but with colleagues and clients too. The the seventh piece that sort of woven throughout, but I think it's telling that it didn't bubble up with the CEOs we interviewed to this level, is what about the operations? Right. Everyone, especially our colleagues and they're like, what about getting into the guts of the operations? And I think the notable piece was for these truly exceptional CEOs. They're not in the weeds in that kind of way. I mean, they are when they need to be. They absolutely will zero in if there's a problem and it needs intervention. But part of their superpower is they've found the right altitude to fly at. And they've got great teams leading. They have good dashboards to know how things are going because there's a whole bunch of work that only the CEO can do. That's nothing to do with the operations, right? I think it was, I love the quote from Satya Nadella who says, everyone says the CEO role is lonely. And there's a bunch of lonely reasons and we can get into the social part of it. But in his mind, he said, it's an information asymmetry problem. No one underneath you sees everything that you see and no one above you, you're bored sees everything that you see. You're this single point of integration. So if you're not the one kind of connecting the dots, making sure it's all syncing up, looking to the future while people are running the day-to-day, well, then who else is doing that? So you've got to free up time to do that work that only the CEO can do. You need other people running the office. Idea number one, and again, I feel like I'm, I'm pulling out my inner Dan Pink here, uh, pulling out some big ideas, but the the S curves 
and the Milestones. I think one of the most underrated management book that's ever been written is The Mythical Man Month. And there's a, a great description about milestones in that book. But the S-curves, there's even a, a graphic in the book and the concept of milestones. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, let's let's dive in and talk about it. This notion of S-curves really came out of a lot of questions we were getting from CEOs and reflections. You know, how do you manage these tenures, especially if you aspire to be in the role for more than a couple of years, right? It's not, it can't be a marathon because investors and others are expecting you to deliver right. much sooner than that. But it also can't just be a sprint unless you want to be a bit of a one-hit wonder, right? So this notion of how do you manage a series of sprints or a series of S-curves where maybe, and it varies by industry, but maybe there's a three or four year push of here's the next hill we're going to take. Here's the vision for what that will be, the bold moves we're going to make to take the resources we need. And then as the company is executing against that, the CEO can start looking ahead and saying, okay, as we round that out in the next three or four years, where are we going to go next? And then where are we going to, and always being ahead and thinking about what that next aspiration is in a really bold way, right? So I'll, I'll, one quick story, Ajay Banget MasterCard, right? When he took over, you know, eight or nine years ago, by the way, they went from 12 billion to 300 billion in market cap in his tenure. You know, they were, you know, you have to rewind back 10 years ago where we weren't paying for everything online, right? And all the hallway chatter was, how do we beat our competitors? You know, how do we beat the other credit card players, Visa, MX? And he kind of popped his head up and he said, well, that's great that we're trying to beat our competitors. There's a much bigger game here. At the time, 90% of the world was still paying for things in cash. It's like, why are we all quibbling over here to fight over this part of the market when there's this huge playground of what trans- What would it mean for us to really transform transactions? And it revolutionized how MasterCard thought about itself. They made a series of bold moves into debit card, into online payments, into all these things. But it's because he was thinking ahead, right? What's that next S-curve of where the, the market's going and what role we can play in shaping that? And that's really the purview of the CEO, right? Who else can give permission to their organization to think that boldly? And the reason I love this narrative is it's the opposite of the annual budget. And again, that's where the milestones uh, pop in. In that same section of the book, noble purpose comes up. And I want to ask you, the consultant, not the author, because as the author, you're trying to share facts, your research. So... I'm going to ask the consultant, Carolyn, have you found that it's rare or maybe not rare of CEOs being able to instill this noble purpose throughout the entire organization? Is that a rare feat or is that something that's becoming more common with the CEOs that you've mentored and coached? The idea of having a purpose statement is very in vogue, right? Almost everyone, in terms of it being common, almost everyone has one on a poster somewhere. I think those who really take it seriously and do it well are much more rare. But those who do it well, it does set them apart, right? Not only in terms of giving their their leaders and their companies a sense of deep purpose that I think employees are demanding, and frankly, customers are demanding now, but in those moments of truth, it becomes 
a touchstone you can use to help guide decisions. And that's when you know it wasn't just platitudes on a poster, but that you deeply feel it, right? You think about all of the, the stakeholder decisions they've had to make through the pandemic. I mean, Russia, Ukraine now, we've never seen Western companies pivot as quickly as they have. Right. And those who did it quickly came back to their own purpose and values. Who are we as a company? What do we stand for in the world? And what are we trying? How is that congruent with how we operate? And it is informing decisions, I think, much more than ever before. I'm going to make a, I'm going to guess that at least 80 to 90 percent of people who listen to this show have read Good to Great. It might even be pushing 95 percent. Mm-hmm. So Jim Collins mentions level five leadership. And I I reread the level five, the, the components of that pyramid, even this morning. It's like, boy, that this is... This gives me warm fuzzies. Uh, it's like this. This. This is neat. How can I not like this level five leadership concept? However, what you share could be slightly controversial because Jim and other people like Vern Harnish uh, and some other well-known consultants they talk about get your who first. Mm-hmm. Well. Your your message is get the roles first, then the people. And I gave you a standing ovation as I got to that <laughs> section in the book. Do you want to expand a little bit? Sure. I love how well-read you are, Mark. It's truly inspiring. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, I mean, we were purposely controversial in how we worded it. We actually say great CEOs don't put people first. But of course, they care about people. We're not saying right, that they exactly. don't. You can and you should and you absolutely have to. But there was a fascinating reframe that these truly top of their game CEOs did. Instead of having you know, their head of HR or someone give them the list of high potentials that they should go for breakfast with when they're in that local town or you know, meet them after the town hall, driven straight from their strategy, they said, given where we're taking the company and what we're trying to get done and where value creation will come from, what are the, depending on company size, 50 to 200 roles? And for these big companies, it tended more like 200 roles that disproportionately deliver the value. Frankly, where I can't afford not to have an A player. And those roles aren't necessarily just your top team, right? By design, if you're talking that many roles, they're not. And sometimes they're quite surprising, right? If I think about an insurance right, where your claims adjusting is a huge driver of your value, right? Your claims adjuster down over here, you better have great people or it would make or break. If you're making a big expansion into Asia, the country manager in Indonesia that might be five levels down, you need to have a great person. And you can think of the corollaries in other industries, but these CEOs knew what those roles were that really mattered. And then you make sure you have your great people in those roles. Right? But it's it's less, hey, I've got Sally, I've got Aditya, they're fantastic. How are we going to you know, plot them in somewhere? It's I have these critical roles. Who has the skills to deliver? Quite a reframe. One of my inside jokes with a very good friend, he's part of the Patrick Lencioni table group, uh, his consulting arm. One of my inside private jokes is, I guess it's not private anymore, what is organizational health? So my answer to that is, oh, that's easy. It's a one to two billion dollar industry, and and as as we look at developing teamwork, 
based on your research and getting into the book, what do you consider to be some of your effective ways of increasing teamwork? As as you step back now as a reader, what do you think, boy, I like this approach or I like this approach in developing teamwork? And I ask you that on purpose because you spend as much time being an executive coach to CEOs uh, as as opposed to just being a general consultant? I guess, you know, two pieces and they're related, right? You know, there's a lot of focus on getting the right people on the team. And sure, you want to make sure you don't have, you know, folks that are ill-suited for the team, a distraction, not helpful. So you do need to move on people that shouldn't be there. But for the most part, great CEOs take who they've got and they make them high performing together, right? And this is the dream team story from, you know, basketball team where they had an incredible team of all stars, but everyone thought they were the hero and the hotshot, right? And the coach purposely in their first practice game against a college team, let them lose, right? And he let them lose on purpose because he wanted them to realize that unless they came together as a team, it didn't matter how great they were individually. And we saw CEOs do that the same way. So Brad Smith at Intuit, You know, he spent time really getting their dynamic right. How will we make decisions? What will this look like? What is the work that only this team can do? And make sure that that's the work we're focused on and everyone else is still doing their day jobs. What does that look like? This isn't about kind of trust falls in the woods, right? It's about doing real work together. And leaders really knew what that would be. I mean, um, Bill George at Medtronic took the dream team example to, to the extreme. They had met quarterly earnings, 47 quarters in a row. And a quarter was coming up and they were going to lose and or, or not meet it. And he let them not meet earnings, even though he could have done some financial engineering to smooth it over because he needed his team to have a wake-up call. So this notion of managing the psychology of your team and making sure they are bonded together with a shared direction for what they're trying to get done, it was quite overwhelming how, how thoughtful they were about that as opposed to just getting a bunch of rock stars and letting them do their thing. Board engagement. I know you're going to be interviewed a lot. So I thought, I want to pull out something that I bet she'll never be asked about. And I, my, one of the many parts I liked in the board section was getting them connected with some of the management team members below the CEO. I thought, oh, I do that with banking when I'm working with bankers. I want because it leads to more confidence. Uh, there are other reasons, but again, just kudos for that being revealed in the the research. Absolutely. Again, it could a little bit of a controversial one, or at least counterintuitive, right? And I would say the board section in general was the one, at least I felt, there was the biggest difference between really confident, well performing CEOs and the average CEO in terms of how they approach the board, right? The prevailing wisdom is sort of, it's something to be managed, keep them at bay, got through the board meeting. Okay, I'm good. These CEOs had a radically different view, right? They really were engaging their boards to say, how do I help the directors help me and help my business? And one aspect of that is not being afraid to let them talk directly to your team and directly to your talent, even outside of the board meeting, right? And this is one that I feel new CEOs or CEOs that aren't as confident with their board get a bit nervous about, you know, I want to manage the message. I want to make sure they're not telling my team members differently to what I'm telling them and back and forth. These CEOs that are in a groove, they're not worried. They're like, look, I'm in sync with my board. 
what incredible mentorship they could be providing. And frankly, as I think ahead to succession planning, I want my board to know my bench. I want them to know my team. I want them to develop. It takes real confidence to have that mindset. But when you do it, it's so freeing and such an unlock. I want to make sure I get my last questions in. The section on personal effectiveness was outstanding. I'm almost glad it was at the end because I might have been tempted to, okay, I'm, I'm good. This, I mean, that, that's a book in and of itself. We could talk a, a whole hour about this last pillar, that's this last piece of the framework. I can also envision the late Peter Drucker reading this and say, they got it because I'm thinking the effective executive. I'm just curious, did, did that title, did, did that title come to mind as you were writing this last part of the book? Absolutely. I mean, Drucker has so much wisdom, right? We can't help but go back to, to so much of his teaching. And I think that was the question we were trying to answer, right? What does the effective executive look like in the chief executive role, right? This sort of ultimate role where the scope and scale is unlike anything else. It's superhuman job, to be honest, and the, the demands are limitless. So what is the rubric you're going to use to figure out what you should get involved in and not? How are you going to manage your time? I mean, if you can't, there was a, a quote in the book from a CEO a year in who had realized they'd let their calendar get out of control. They wake up at like three in the morning in Singapore and was trying to reply to emails. It was crazy. And they went back to their team and their team kind of said, a bit of tough love. Like, if you don't know what your priorities are, it's hard for us to help you manage your calendar. And so a lot of these CEOs didn't come out knowing how to do this. And they'll even admit, they said, it took me some real hard bumps to figure out what it looks like. And so this is their advice looking back, right? What they wish they'd known so that other people can maybe accelerate through that learning phase faster. But you have to be laser focused on what's the value add you're bringing? Where do you add it? What's the work only you can do? And then how are you going to keep your own energy up? Right? I mean, these, these jobs are, are grueling. And so what are your sources of energy? And it's not as simple as work versus out of work, right? Laundry drains me. Work, fun meetings with people I like give me energy. So it's not, it's not that kind of split. But recognizing that and then really working closely with your executive assistant, your chief of staff, your team to plan out your day, week, year. Most of them are a year in advance to make sure that you have things that are going to give you energy and things, the tough stuff kind of nestled in throughout. Um, it, it's a real art. I'm a huge Reed Hoffman fan. Uh, he's not flamboyant. It's he's, He doesn't want the limelight, but he's incredibly smart. He tells a story when he's a young programmer. You know, he'd go in early in the morning, and then he I, I guess he drank a lot of coffee. And he'd noticed that someone would clean his coffee cups about once a week. And one day he went to the bathroom, and he found the CEO washing coffee cups. You bring up humility in the book, and it's not by accident. I, again, applaud the concept or the idea that humility is a key role or plays a significant factor in personal effectiveness. Absolutely. And I, I love that story as well. And it made a huge imprint on Reed. So when he then became a founder and CEO, this idea of servant leadership, right? It was a, such a common thread in all these conversations that we had. And you're right, I probably came in with 
a little bit of cynicism of, oh, are we going to meet just a bunch of really big egos, right? The classic kind of 1980s, 90s, all-knowing. They weren't. I mean, to a person, they were not. In a way, these jobs are almost too big for that. Gone are the days that one person could know it all. And so this notion of both, they need to engage people to get to the right answer and to make the magic happen in their organizations, but also very much this notion that they are the steward of their company for some period of time. And then at some point, they won't be anymore. And so how will you leave it better than you found it? Right. That was sort of the prevailing theme that came throughout. Everyone wanted to add value, to make it better, to leave it in a good place. But they also called out how ego can get in the way. Right. We talked about that with big mergers and big deals and how you can get so enamored by, you know, being that person and, you know, having the courage to say, actually, that's not the right call. We're going to pull back from that. We're going to do something different. I mean, making those. It's a funny analogy, but a terrible analogy, maybe. It's like when you're about to get married and the church is already full or whatever. At that point, it's easier to go rather than to say time out. This wasn't the right idea. And these CEOs were willing to say when they'd made a mistake and they needed to pivot. And, And that takes huge humility and courage. And we're all better off for them having done it. I am a huge baseball fan. And one of my favorite teams, the Kansas City Royals, here in the breadbasket of of the U.S., Uh, he is a manager for the Kansas City Royals. A few years ago, he wrote a book called The Matheny Manifesto. And in that book, he talks about 16 to 17 accountability partners uh, that he has, and he'll use them for important decisions. He'll use them, am I being humble? And, and so then I get to the part of your book called The Kitchen Cabinet, and I'm thinking, yes, this is validating the Minathini Manifesto. I don't care if you're a CEO or anyone. I love The Kitchen Cabinet. Explain what it is. We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. Absolutely. And I'm going to, I'm going to steal your Matheny manifesto. That sounds like a great one. The kitchen cabinet is a group of a small group of people who are going to tell you the truth and keep you grounded, right? They play a couple of roles. And as you said, there might be different people who play some of this, right? The research has shown that when literally CEOs lose the ability to tell whether or not someone is truly laughing at their joke or not. It's fascinating. Someone did the psychology research. You end up in an echo chamber, right? So who are the people who are going to tell you the truth that you're off track, that people think what you're doing is crazy, that you need to hear a tough message? Who are also the people who you can problem solve with in a safe space, right? There is still a notion that some CEOs feel they have to have the answers and they don't feel safe maybe admitting to their whole team when they don't know. So who are the couple of people 
who you can say, look, I have no idea. Can you help me here? And they might be outside of your company. Sometimes it's an old mentor. Sometimes it's a previous CEO. Sometimes it's an advisor. But you've got to have a sparring partner, a thought partner. And then the third piece of it, which I'm hearing more and more about that makes me excited, is the idea of a reverse mentor. Some CEOs now are reaching down in their organizations, especially with digital and with the changing expectations of employees. And they have someone who's a couple of decades younger than them, who they meet with regularly, who they explicitly give permission to reverse mentor. Tell me what I don't know. Teach me. Keep me honest. Tell me what's not resonating. I think that's a really exciting thing that people are playing with. But it's all about staying grounded and having some some real thought partners where you can be very real with. I'm sure if David Letterman or someone similar, Seinfeld, were talking to you, they might laugh at this next question. Can you plug the heck out of whatever you want to plug? It's like, yeah, McKinsey, they don't need to be plugged, but feel free to, you've got the floor. Well, again, this is almost hilarious because uh, the last couple of people I've interviewed, they have small boutique consulting practices so it's it's a they love being able to answer that question. I'm not even sure how to ask that question. Can can, can you plug the heck out of of your work at McKinsey in case no one's heard of McKinsey? Sure, sure. I mean, I think I think our hope in this book, both for people who would read it and broadly, is to create. Think of there being a CEO almost as a discipline unto itself, right? right? And so this notion that. There are lessons learned. There are playbooks. Not everyone has to make this up on their own. And actually seeing that being a student of the role in and of itself, there's value add. And I just get, we get a lot of of reward working with people at all stages, right? Whether people who are aspiring to be a CEO, what can I do to get ready? Folks who are new in role, right? How do I get my first year right? It's not 100 days, by the way. You've got longer which is bringing together all these pieces at once. The the middle S-curve, right? We've had folks reach out and say, look, I'm five years in. I've delivered a great transformation. I've turned around the company. What next? And then the succession planning and kind of handing over the reins. And I think that's a really interesting moment because you're not only getting the next CEO ready and thinking about who that person will be, but you also want to finish strong yourself. And frankly, think about what's next. I think there, here's a business plug for someone else. There is a business model out there for someone to be the career guidance counselor for retiring like 65 year old executives who still want to contribute, right? But they don't know what that looks like. So I get a lot of my meaning out of helping individuals be successful in that journey. And we hope that this book kind of demystifies it for people um, and, and democratizes it too, right? I'd love to see more diversity in these roles this isn't some hidden secret, right? This is something you can learn and do well. As your unsolicited speech writer, don't forget to include, you don't have to be an, in fact, it's impossible to be an expert at all six of these. Absolutely. Be be like, you have a great metaphor at the end. Thank the Catholic. And right. that was, oh yeah, that, that's great. So again, I'm, just, I'm stealing your thunder. No, I love that. No, but it's such a good notion. And the the Kathleen analogy is is the right one for this role. You don't need to be doing every individual person's job, right? You don't need to be the Simone of gymnastics and this and this. Your job is bringing it all together. You need to be good enough at all the things. 
And then you're the only one that's stitching it all together. And that in and of itself is your role and adds huge value. You can ask good questions. You can raise things other people aren't seeing. And feeling confident in that role adds tremendous value. I ask every single guest about their favorite books. It's one of the favorite questions I have. And by the way, it doesn't have to be business books. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be books you've recently read. What are some books that have bent your mind? What are some books that have been impactful or meaningful to you over the years? That's a good question. I will admit, I am a busy working mom with two young kids, so I don't do a ton of reading. Um, although, you know, even reading the kids' books is always a really good reminder of just the the wonder and imagination and the questions that they raise. I, I learn a lot, even putting myself back in those shoes. Um, and so, yes, I would say children's books at the moment are my inspiration. Keep me grounded. That's very cool. Again, it's been an honor getting to chat with you. And just congratulations to you and your co-authors on this incredible book. This is a book you don't just read it, you read it, and then you start applying it. But so thank Thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for a terrific conversation. What a pleasure. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Carolyn Dewar, again, thank you very much. The name of the book, CEO Excellence, The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best Leaders from the Rest. Uh, Carolyn, yes, she speaks with a smile. Uh, she is, you talk about being all in and engaged. What a incredible and, again, pleasant conversation. And Carolyn, don't know if you're going to hear this, but I'm calling you behind your back the next Bill Campbell. You're a leader. And I just bet the CEOs that you work with are energized after they've worked with you and spent time with you. I want to wrap up with the 40-30-20-10 rule originated by Brad Smith. I'm sure he heard it from one of his mentors, uh, Brad Smith, the former CEO of Intuit. I believe he's the executive chairman of Intuit. Now, you may want to check that, fact check that. But his 40-30-20-10 rule is how he spends his time or did as a chief executive officer. The 40, 40% is all about driving performance. The 30 is coaching, and that would include mentoring as well. 20% spent with outsiders, 10% personal growth, and learning. Now, I work with a lot of business owners, founders, $50 million and under, $75 million and under. Uh, There are some things that get pulled out of that list. Uh, I would say the 40 driving performance is sometimes upwards to 60 to 80%. Very little time for coaching. With outsiders, it's on an as-need basis, spinning plates, and then personal growth and learning. Oh, what's that? So if you read the book, Check out the 40-30-20-10 rule, Brad Smith, who is mentioned throughout the book. Hey, great conversation. And also thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.